Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Tess Latham. This is episode 112. The Sixth Frontier War had started and now Harry Smith was in Grahamstown, rearranging the military furniture. He wasn't there for long. As a man of action, he was determined to chase down the Amakos who had begun to retire back east across the Fish River by the end of the first week of January 1835, driving thousands of cattle, sheep and horses before them. The dithering Colonel Somerset was busy trying to secure the road between Grahamstown and Port Elizabeth, and by the end of the first week of January, a separate force of 400 armed volunteers had already raided Charlie's Great Place and torched the entire homestead. Way beyond the Kai River, Hinsa glowed as he received reports of his Amakosa chiefs and their successes against the settlers. For some time, he had hesitated in taking up arms against the British and the Trekpoors, who were inexorably moving towards him, but it was now time to make a choice. Hinsa had tried his best to stay out of the encroaching settler crosshairs, telling the British, since they'd taken control of the cabin in the early 1800s, that he wanted to be friends. He remained neutral during the quarrels between the Rarabek Khosa and the British. He'd stopped the Khosa youngsters fighting against the British in 1819, only to see Nele attack Gramstown. But he'd known for some time that the menace was approaching. Land was the treasure, and approaching settlers wanted this land. Things weren't a simple matter, however. Remember, he had hated Inglika, the Rarabi regent, and had fractured a cause of response to the colonial expansion. But now Inglika was dead, and hence his chiefs were calling for him to get more involved in this frontier war. On the other side, Harry Smith's peninsula buddy, Major William Cox of the 75th Regiment, was leading the charge towards him. Hinsa was told of the destruction wrought on Charlie's great place. His fortress had been torched. Kraals had been burnt within a mile of the missionary station run by another William, a Chalmers. If you recall last episode, Chalmers had written letters in support of Macroma and Charlie offering peace terms. These were promptly rejected by Harry Smith. This put the missionaries in a rather invidious position. They were now more associated with the colonial government than ever. When Chalmers worked up the courage and approached Makoma with Harry Smith's rejection of his peace plan, open hostility was the response. Tiali by now had moved into the Amatolas after his great place was torched, and Chalmers tried to get another message to the Amatolas chief in what he described as the lurking place. Eventually, he managed to meet Tiali, who appeared suicidal, saying he was killing his own cattle and eating them. Amakosa rarely slaughtered their cattle, preferring to drink the milk and mashed corn, but now he was eating only meat. He also told Chalmers it was time for him to defend himself because the Kosa chiefs could no longer ensure his protection. He had lifted the protection order. Charlie demanded Amakosa, who had been living on mission stations, to join the war against the Europeans. In a flash, all the missionaries living throughout the Kosa territory were in serious danger. About a dozen missionaries and their families rushed to Burns Hill near the Kaiskama River under the brow of the Amatolas. It was a few kilometers from Ngika's gravesite and close to where his widow Sutu lived. She was now personally protecting the missionaries and had already saved the life of a white trader who the Amatolas were trying to kill. Another Kosa woman who also worked to stop the wholesale slaughter was Nonibe, the widow of Ntlambe's son, Umdushan. Nonibe was interesting because she was descended from a white woman 
who'd survived the wreck of the Grosvenor in 1772, and her actions were seen as a kind of affirmation of kinship. Strange tales from strange times. Sutu had heard that the Amakosa chiefs had lifted the protection of the London Missionary Society and the other agencies, so she called on distant missionaries to come to Burns Hill to be close to her and sent a wagon to fetch the John Ross family, who were now living in their new station called Piri on the slopes of the Amatolas. A party of warriors duly descended on Burns Hill shortly afterwards, and Sutu emerged from her home to begin arguing with the warriors, shouting, threatening, crying. They turned away, but it wasn't going to be long before they were back. The missionaries were aware of this and sent word to Harry Smith that they were in mortal danger. Smith had already organized the reoccupation of Fort Wilshire and sent his chum, Cox, to the fort to collect a force and to use this patrol to reach the missionaries at Burns Hill. They were brought to Grahamstown, but three missionaries refused to join them, believing that the Amakosa amongst whom they lived were neutral in this war. The Brownleys, whom I mentioned last episode, lived with Yani Chachu's people. The Wesleyans, Henry Dugmore, who was living with Pato of the Kunukwebe, and another Wesleyan called John Aliff, who was living across in Hinsa's territory. A town named in his honour survives in the Transkar, Mount Aliff, also known as Matlesebeni. Back in Grahamstown, Smith was totally unsentimental about the lot of the churchmen, and this view descended into one of scorn and disapproval. Meanwhile, the Amatkosa wave that had washed across the frontier lost momentum. The energy sapping last three weeks had been driven by frustration and anger that had boiled over after years of ignominy. And like all wars driven by revenge, when the emotion is sapped, the morale withers. Furthermore, livestock had been seized and it was time to divvy up the rewards. The Amatkosa were in command of huge areas of the frontier, but now what? How were they going to hold on to these lands? The short answer is they weren't. The entire war was strategically lopsided, built on a bloodlust, not political smarts. It was time for a tactical retreat. The Amakosa position was still formidable. They were no longer in open country. They had moved back across rivers into bush ravines, ready for the inevitable counter-attacks. They controlled the territory from the mountains all the way to the sea. Makoma and Tiali and their allied chiefs were in the Amatolas up in the fastness of the Eastern Cape Mountains, where the mists ascend to reveal the fairy tale beauty. Others, such as Botomani and Ngeno, were deep in the Fisher River bush, where no British soldier liked to ride. From here they could strike in any direction. The settlers were in an extremely difficult situation. At first, Colonel Harry Smith was to counter-attack in the classic tradition, trying to entice his enemy out of their lairs, then defeating them in one large-scale full-frontal battle. Smith planned open-ground fighting, making the warriors emerge from their mountains and the thick bush retreats, but the Amatkosa had learned a thing or three about fighting the British, and they weren't going to be sucker-punched like this. Nothing worked. It slowly began to dawn on Smith that this struggle was nothing like the battles he'd fought in America or Europe, and this was going to wear him down psychologically. Smith wanted open ground fighting. He was a Jack Russell. And another challenge was on his way, the lumbering St. Bernard, Governor Benjamin de Urban. The governor had eventually decided he should see for himself what manner of war was going on and arrived in Grahamstown on the 20th of January, 1835, the day that Smith had sent his patrols off to save the missionaries. Harry Smith was de Urban's chief of staff and he was promoted to full colonel 
and the new fool Colonel Smith presented a plan to deal with the Amatlosa. This was a fairly simple matter, he thought, of herding the Amatlosa into a position where they were collected in large numbers on the felt somewhere, then he'd fall upon them and destroy them. First things first, and it involved his exposed flank. He had to deal with Amakosa, who were hiding out in the Fish River bush, and a force of 300 colonial men was put together and sent along with Colonel Richard England to clear the clues. This was not a job to be savoured. It was going to be a horrendous exercise, and Colonel England was going to cover himself in cowardice. Smith drafted in the Boers from all over the colony and gathered as many of the Khoikhoi he could in the auxiliary units. Several hundred British settlers were also drafted, and the Bowker boys were ecstatic. They formed themselves into their own corps of guides as experts in the bush of the Eastern Cape, wrapping their Boer-style slouch hats with leopard-skin bands, their own unique insignia. These new colonial soldiers were not paid a cent. They were given ammunition and food, while ironically the 1,300 Khoikhoi were paid the same as the full-time British soldiers. Another of the odd anomalies in this war, Smith believed the English settlers shouldn't be paid because they, of course, were fighting for their land. There were only 1,800 British troops garrisoned in South Africa in total, and 450 of these were now on the frontier with Smith. Facing them were upwards of 10,000 Amakosa warriors. Then, in early February 1835, Colonel England, who'd headed off with the colonials to clear the Fish River bush, appeared back in Grahamstown. Smith was furious. The man had left his command. England stuttered that he thought it best to explain the need for more troops himself. But for a Peninsula veteran, the abandonment of command was unheard of, for whatever reason. Smith marched with England to meet Urban at his Grahamstown HQ, and the governor was equally shocked. They ejected the hapless England from the room, and Urban said, God, he has had a licking. What the devil made him leave his troops? The urban told Smith to head down to the bushy Fish River ravines himself to see what was going on, taking 1,200 men with him. This was fortunate, because, as he was going to find out, England may have been a coward, but he wasn't wrong about needing more men. As they approached the Fish River Valley on the 10th of February, Smith began to appreciate what awaited him. The Amatosa were located deep inside the thickets and sending out small bands of warriors to lie in wait and ambush colonial patrols, taunting them into pursuit, teasing them to follow into the dark bush. Harry Smith, who had faced guerrilla war before, nevertheless began to become extremely frustrated. For the English settlers, this was the first time they were going into battle anywhere, and for them, an unfortunate introduction to South African warfare. There was no rousing trooping of the colours, battalions splayed across hillsides, flashing swords, etc., etc. No, there was an absence of colour and light, made worse by perverse weather. February is one of the hottest months in southern Africa, interspersed with heavy rain. One minute they'd be gasping in the hot and humid thickets, only shortly later to be lashed by storms, freezing. The tracks they were using became a sticky mess of red mud, which coated everything. Smith eventually arrived on the west bank of the Fish River and found it in full flood, stopping his advance in its tracks. On the east bank, the Amatosa could be seen along the thickly wooded slopes, hundreds of feet high, cut by dark and tangled deep cliffs, ravines that plunged straight down in places to the river. 
They'd managed to drive the captured cattle halfway up these slopes where the angles were less extreme, protected by fierce thorns and densely woven creepers and vines. It was hard to reconcile the grand nature of these rivers, how silent and peaceful they appeared, surrounded by towering yellowwood trees and willows, with the lurking steel within. The flora here is memorable. Eastern Cape giant cycad, the red and white milkwood, the acacia, the white pear, the karoo burpin, Strelitzia nicolai, dune poison bush, wild plum, coral tree, and the small knobwood. This river originates just east of Graf Reinet. It runs through Craddock, joined by the Tarka River just south, and zigzags to Cookhouse, then meanders down the escarpment east of Gramstown, and dives almost straight towards the sea, where it ends in an estuary. It's tidal for quite a length, 20 kilometers. However, it was above this area that the Amakosa had decided to make their last stand against the approaching settlers and Harry Smith's soldiers. As the two sides faced off across the seminal South African river, the bird calls would have been distinct and the antelope and bush pigs, mongoose, the bats and the shy Southern African wildcat may have leered at them as they made their evening fires, readying for the upcoming fight. Also watching were the vervet monkeys, noisy and bolshy, while the birds, the Nasna Luri, the giant kingfisher and the fish eagle could be seen flying about. At least 26 types of snakes slithered through the bush nearby, six of these venomous. None were going to be as dangerous as each of these two groups of humans were to each other. Smith broke up his force into three divisions, taking the central group, and others were under Colonels England and Henry Somerset. His idea was to send the men to the bottom of the Fish River Cliffs as soon as they crossed the river, which was still flooding, while he and his artillery circled the cliffs and waited for the Amakosa warriors to appear over the summit. Somerset and England would outflank the warriors, flushing them out of the ravines, then close off in the rear to stop any escape along the open country beyond towards the Kaiskama River bush. You can imagine Harry dusting his hands in anticipation of the dust-up. By the 11th of February, the river began to fall, and Smith started sending his men across the great fish. The men who were furthest from the cliffs would begin attacking from six kilometers away, silently making their way up the river along the bank, then spending the night without fires immediately below the causa. The British could hear the cattle lowing and the whistles, so they had a pretty good idea where the warriors were encamped. The British regulars were Scots of the 72nd Highland Regiment, and they had only just arrived in South Africa. This was going to lead to repercussions in the coming battle. It was a full moon that night as they made their way up the river, but the bush was so thick they couldn't see it. The night noises terrified the Scots. The geography itself appeared gloomy and dangerous. It was a night of terror as they tried to cut their way as quietly as possible along the bank, the Khoikhoi guides breaking path. Some of the soldiers began to lose touch with those ahead, and panic grew amongst these men. One of the youngsters lost his head completely in the dark. Something moved, and his nerves snapped. He fired his gun, then all others around him began firing theirs too. Fusillade after fusillade followed, and when the gunshots halted, four of the 72nd Scots Regiment were dead, shot by each other. Three others were wounded. And of course, now the Amakosa warriors knew exactly where the enemy was. Smith decided to go ahead at dawn on the 12th with his attack, a day that was described by all as exceedingly still a quiet morning in which the wilderness was suspended.
The only sound was the solemn deep roll of the torrent below. All that could be seen was a smoke signal or two that rose occasionally from the base of the cliff. Above, the cattle could be heard here and there, or the early morning birds. Harry Smith then ordered his artillery to open fire into the ravines, pouring round-shot shells and shrapnel into the bush where the Amatkoza could be seen driving their cattle deeper. Below, the Scots and other troops began to move up the sides of the steep cliffs, clambering through the bush. The fight that developed between these two sides was as fierce as any Smith had ever known, made more intimate by the closeness of the bush, merciless and cruel, made more confusing by the cattle, which bellowed as the fighting grew. The Amatkoza and the British soldiers were soon engaged in desperate hand-to-hand fighting as the cattle burst out of the bush, ran past with no room to move. Here and there, some burst into the open spaces of elephant paths. One of the settlers fighting with the Scots described this battle and its horrors. Henry James Hulser was part of the Albany sharpshooters and only 18. He faced Amatkoza who'd broken off their assegais to use as stabbing spears in the traditional manner and the settlers and soldiers rapidly found their guns almost useless in the deep forest. Some didn't have bayonets and had to use the butts of their rifles as clubs. One of the settlers broke his gun over Amatkoza warrior's head and pulled out his pocket knife and began stabbing another who stabbed him back. Both holding the other, they rolled to the edge of the cliff, stabbing as they fell to their deaths. You could say that this one moment symbolized the utter futility of war, the lunacy of violence, where rage and revenge turn men into formless beasts, and ultimately no one wins. The sergeant of the 72nd was standing, firing extremely accurately. Each shot left a warrior dead until one launched a throwing spear that passed through both his legs, locking them closed, pinned together. Hulser pulled the spear out from the sharp side. The sergeant in agony as the entire spear was pulled through both his legs. This was war in its hardest and most extreme form. Harry Smith's comments about fighting a bunch of black fellows with nothing but a knife stuck on the end of a stick sounded exceedingly hollow at about this moment. In his next report to Durban, Harry, the scourge of Napoleon's troops, referred to the Amatkoza as daring and athletically savage, and those fighting the enemy must be alert, brave, and determined. Men fighting in the soon-to-be-named Black Watch, or the Royal Highlands Regiment, the 42nd, described the suddenness of the Amatkoza attacks, and as suddenly they would withdraw. One of the Scots officers, Captain James Edward Alexander, realized that the Amatkoza had the only practical weapon for such combat, the shortened spear. It was a perfect weapon in this thick bush, these ravines. The British had erred by not arming their men with short lances or swords. Despite Captain Alexander's suggestion, they never did arm their men in this war with such weapons, and they were going to pay a price for that. So the soldiers stumbled away, got lost, and then were picked off by the Amatkoza, their bodies gone forever in the dense undergrowth, devoured by the wild animals. The Amatkoza melted away, and Smith moved on, Neither side had won the first battle. It's true that four days after beginning this assault, the Amatkoza withdrew from their positions along the cliffs. Smith then made the fatal error of assuming that his enemy had withdrawn and wrote to his love, Juanita, declaring in four days he'd managed what no other commander in South Africa had managed. It was during one of the follow-up patrols that Richard England requested permission to go back to Grahamstown. Once more his nerve appeared to have failed him. England was 42 by now, a Canadian by birth, 
the son of a general, a limited man, deeply mediocre, if that isn't tautological. Colonel England was to head off to fight in the Afghan war, then later, as Major General Sir Richard England, he would fight in the Crimean war, and there he would be called a terrible fool by fellow officers. The Times newspaper was to call him absolutely disastrous and a public danger. What Smith had in terms of kahunas, England did not. Smith told the urban by late February that the Tlaza had been driven out of the Great Fish River ravines, but no one had seen any retreating eastwards. Talk about wishful thinking. There was only a nine-mile gap to police from the area where the Tlaza were last seen and the Kaiskama River, and Somerset was marching about in this small space and not a single warrior had been spotted. The truth was that Tlaza was still in the Fish River bush. Its meandering course towards the sea had many sheltered spots for a small army. It's true, they'd lost most of their cattle. These had stampeded away during the first battle, but they still lurked in the cliffs and ravines. A few weeks later, they would burst out of these once more and almost overcome a force of boers. What happened next is for episode 113. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. And don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or through Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, Salagatli.